my shoes and out the door. Five, I'm alive, six, seven, eight, feeling great. Hello, BYWG Tribe. Here is a quick peek at our supplement, product, and book of the month for February 2020. At the end of the podcast, I will spend a few minutes going into further detail, so we encourage you to listen to the end. The supplement of the month for February 2020 is Vitamin D3 Boost. This is our newest advanced formulation, combining all the benefits of Vitamin D3, Vitamin K2, Magnesium, and MCT oil. The 10% discount code for the entire month is, and it's all lowercase, VITD10. The product of the month for February is Juve, Red Light Therapy Devices. I personally own the Juve Mini and Juve Go and use them both daily. The book of the month for February is Cancer and the New Biology of Water by Dr. Tom Cowan. Hands down, my personal favorite book of 2019. Keep in mind, all the links, discount codes, and special offers for the product, supplement, and book will be listed in the show notes on iTunes, post on social media, and our weekly newsletter, and on our website at www.beyondyourwildestgenes.com at the Listen Now tab. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome back to Beyond Your Wildest Genes Podcast. My name is Dr. Noah DeCoyer, and I am your co-host. Today we have my friend and one of my Jedi Council members, Dr. Kendra Becker. Uh, this podcast will be the third time she's on, putting her on a very, very short list of three-time guests. I believe there's only one four-time guest on the podcast. The podcast we did on COMT is the fourth most clicked on our entire website. So that's a pretty interesting fact. So you can see how uh, the level of interest and how interesting Dr. Becker is. So welcome back, my friend. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. I love your podcast, but apparently I have to up my game. You've had somebody on your show four times and it wasn't me. I know. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, you, you'll, you'll wiggle your way there. She, it's actually Julianne Carnes, and she's just a really – she just has a lot of great stuff about like goal setting and abundance, and she she always finds her way back onto the podcast. Uh, Dr. Mike has a, forged a really great friendship with her, but you're on a very gotcha. very very short short list. So here's, <laughs> here's Dr. Becker's bio. She's an integrated physician practicing for over 10 years. She is Connecticut's 4A specialist, 4A meaning asthma, autism, allergies, and atopy eczema. She holds a naturopathic degree and an MS in advanced practicing RN. She's very smarty pants. She's board certified in both areas. Her specialties include MTHFR, fertility, and the treatment of the 40s. Dr. Becker focuses primarily treating the pediatric population and their parents. Dr. Becker is an adjunct faculty at two prominent universities where she teaches to physicians and precept student doctors and nurse practitioners. Dr. Becker lectures all over the country on topics such as autism, the immune system, MTHFR, and genetic mutations that have health implications and keeping healing wait yep and keeping healing and health in the home jeez sorry about that dr becker no is worries. author of a delicious way to heal the gut and released her second book all you can eat in may 2018 dr becker was chosen as one of connecticut's top naturopathic doctors and 10 best aprns Dr. Becker, you know, inflammation is an extremely common touch point on our podcast. We always swing back around because it is so important. It's so prevalent. Inflammation is a root cause of most illnesses, and it hit the mainstream sometime in the 1980s when it was on the front of the Time magazine, uh, and our understanding of inflammation has only grown. So let's take a dive into inflammation. 
Inflammation Nation. And this is where I want to start off, Doc. Can you explain the difference, because uh, they're really important, the difference between chronic inflammation and acute inflammation and the relevance of both? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so the let's start with acute inflammation. That's something that we want and is beneficial to healing, right? So say you sprain an ankle, you're walking down the street and you roll your ankle. What happens? You end up with a ton of swelling in that area. And why is that? Because that area now needs to rest. And the and if you were to use your ankle or your foot, then you're going to have some pain. So the swelling protects the area. It brings blood flow, oxygen, and a whole bunch of healing um, enzymes to that area so that the body can start to heal itself. So that is a natural physiologic process that we want to happen, uh, you know, as often as we need it. I mean, I hope you're not chronically spraining your ankles. But nonetheless, it is, is a protective mechanism that exists throughout the body. So chronic inflammation, as you mentioned, is really a whole different subset with a whole different, uh, you know, I guess, load of pathophysiology in the sense that it's kind of like um, a good way to describe it is it's kind of like a blister. So if you have a blister, um, you pop the blister. Well, you're not supposed to, but I'm a doctor, so I do. And then you put a Band-Aid on it and the Band-Aid heals. But if you leave that blister alone and it rubs against the in inside of your shoe, it continues to cause pain and continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you let that blister, um, you don't do anything to cultivate the healing and you let that blister kind of fester, what happens over a long period of time is you actually have physiologic changes in that tissue. So the same thing happens with all of the tissue throughout our whole body, depending on where the inflammation is. So let's just talk about the gut, for example, right? So um, we'll use the example of food allergies. So say you are somebody who has a food allergy to something like gluten. And we are not talking about that food, the type of food allergy that you ingest a food and within 15 minutes your throat closes and you go into anaphylaxis. This is a different kind of food allergy. This is what we call delayed hypersensitivity, meaning you can have uh, an, an ingestion or a contact with something that your body is sensitive to, but you may not develop symptoms for up to 72 hours hours later. The problem is, is if you're eating something that you're developing symptoms to, but you're not exactly identifying what it is, your body creates that same inflammation that you get when you swell your ankle when you roll it walking down the sidewalk. If it is not identified or uh, de dealt with by the organism, that becomes chronic inflammation and a couple of things can happen. Number one, we know that healing doesn't happen. Number two, sometimes the immune system gets missed directed and starts to hyper focus on that particular area of the gut and can kind of, you know, lay the foundation for autoimmune diseases and a, and a ton of other problems. Or the other problem is, is that then you start your inflammation cells and enzymes start recruiting other uh, factors in the gut creating further and um, more profound food allergies and food sensitivities or cross-reactivities. So it's definitely something that you want to deal with. The same process can go on in your thyroid. It certainly can go on in your brain, and it can go on in, in all of your other organs. And that was just kind of a, because I deal fo and focus a lot on gut healing, a nice, succinct way to talk about it. Right. Now, <clears throat> we're going to dive into a lot about food. I mean, that's going to be our prime focus today. But before we just dive in there, are there other triggers for inflammation other than food that, you know, people should just be aware of that we can touch upon? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wi-Fi is a big one, mm, you I know. Thought, I thought it, you were going to say that, yep. Yeah, especially if, you know, you have a particular genetic makeup with MTHFR and COMP-T genes and some of the other genes that are really um, designed to create enzymes to help the body detox. So, you know, this whole 5G rollout, you know, here in Connecticut, you know, our governor loves 5G, you know, because he's going to have his pockets lined when they when they load up the 5G. And so people are very concerned about their health you know, with regard to 5G, you know, the pulsing of the Wi-Fi that goes on in everybody's house um, can actually kind of create and set the scene for something like a mast cell activation disorder, which is just a constant ping and trigger on your cell membrane that is going to irritate your cells and cause it to swell up and create inflammation. So yeah, so Wi-Fi is a big one. Certainly environmental toxins like pesticides and, and smelly chemicals that we find inside our home and things like that. But those things, I, you know, I really feel like humans are much better at managing, you know, getting smelly chemicals out of their home or making sure they're not living in an area that's that's intensely polluted. But, you know, some of our common creature comforts, I think, are minimized as as not being as toxic as they are because we all want to have Wi-Fi 24-7, 365, and we don't realize that there can be an implication on our ourselves for sure yeah the, the tricky thing with wi-fi and, and like many other things is, is that it affects every single individual so differently and it makes it that makes it really challenging really challenging absolutely absolutely but so what i tell my patients is you know first of all most of us have kids that have too much screen time anyway so right. you just shut the wi-fi off you know start with shutting the wi-fi off at night like nobody needs the wi-fi at night you should all be sleeping and then you kind of figure out what your family patterns are. And, you know, you, you buy one of those little pin clocks or, you know, some sort of a timer and you put that on your Wi-Fi and you have your Wi-Fi on like two hours a day. You know, most of us work full time jobs, have kids that are out of the house. And so it's not like you have this constant need to have, you know, exposure to the Wi-Fi or to the Internet because you're really only using it two or three hours a day anyway. Right. 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 Challenging, but definitely, definitely definitely possible um, i would assume most schools now are just totally getting blasted the kids all day with wi-fi as well i would assume oh. that's pretty much ubiquitous right oh absolutely and actually here's a nice little interesting caveat years ago this kid now i think is in junior high but years ago i had a little sensory kid that came into my office and he was fine at home but he used to kind of stim in front of the dishwasher so the mother was really mindful about that they pulled out the dishwasher they insulated it and it reduced the stim at home so the kid was fine at home so then what happened was over time they realized he was really struggling in school and he would stand up from his desk and do some of those like hand flapping movements that you see in the autistic population. So I, I said to the mother, I was like, well, what is it about the classroom? She's like, I don't know. He sits near the window, this, there, and that. Well, we went through everything. Well, it turns out the Wi-Fi um, modem for that classroom was literally over that poor kid's desk. And that was what was causing the stimulation in, you know, in this particular classroom. So we moved his classroom, we moved his desk, and really he wasn't even on the radar as far as having any special needs or, or even, you know, any kind of special concerns going forward. But he, in that case, was very, very sensitive. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of interest in uh, Dr. Mercola's new book that's being released, you know, all about 5G and EMF. It's, it's um 
oh boy, I don't know. We could have that converse. We could have that full conversation another day. I know it's he- that's he- that's some heavy stuff. My favorite book is uh the tinfoil hat guide uh to e- the non tinfoil hat guide to EMFs and and uh, Wi-Fi toxicity. That's a good one too. Oh, that's it's actually a good read in spite of the fact that it's full of a ton of studies. Yeah, I, I notice now they they have like men's underwear that protects from EMS and and. Uh, cats that you can wear i mean it's getting it's getting pretty interesting i'm telling you it's really an interesting topic but we'll uh we'll, we'll come back around to that topic another day for sure so let's let's swing back around to food uh, you mentioned one of them from your perspective doc what are the most inflammatory foods gluten dairy corn and soy and sugar but sugar's kind of in its own separate category for a bunch of different reasons. But as far so when you talk about food sensitivities, of course, you're talking about protein, right? right? So you look at the gluten protein that comes from wheat, you look at the corn protein that comes from corn, you look at the casein protein that comes from dairy, and that's processed in commercial dairy, which is diff- a little bit different than raw dairy, and the soy protein that comes from soy. The corn is very, very acidic. Uh, soy is really not something that humans should consume really in any form. I mean, there's a lot of traditional use of fermented soy in Asian countries, and clearly the fermentation process breaks down a lot of the protein, so it's something that can be digestible for some humans to consume. Dairy, uh, we have just completely damaged what we've done to dairy, and, and humans are the only animal, the only mammal, that wean their young off their own milk to put them on the milk of another animal. I mean, it's, it's something that just goes against all, you know, concepts in, in nature. I understand, um, you know, I, I don't know if you know this uh noah but it's illegal to talk bad about milk in 13 states in this country <laughs> well you know what we can have a, a conversation we talk good about milk whether it's a2 milk whether it's raw right. unpasteurized i mean so we could we could have the we could have both conversations we could have a bad conversation on dairy we could have a good conversation on dairy um yeah. and you know dairy is not unlike um wi-fi where or anything else we're talking about today where it's individualistic. I mean, there are societies and there are people that can handle dairy. I know for myself, I can handle small amounts of dairy and I can handle r- rather large amounts of sheep and goat dairy with mm-hmm. little or no issues. And um, my kids enjoy uh, um, uh, A2 milk and it doesn't seem to bother them at all either. Yet they were both colic as children. So that's a kind of a complex topic or not a complex topic, but a a topic worth really investigating in an individualistic basis. Sure, absolutely. But as a protein, casein is mucus producing and yeah. inflammatory. I agree. So, and you are a hundred percent correct in the sense that everybody has their own tolerance to, and threshold to any of these. To be quite honest with you, but as you know, we're looking at inflammation things. You are completely and totally right. And there's there's a whole podcast there to unpack about you know if you're going to consume dairy, like what you should consume, and raw and sheep and goat and all of that. And I totally agree with you. But- and then of course gluten is. Is, you know, my biggest, you know, is my biggest public enemy number one. And again, you know, to that same point, the gluten, the biggest problem is, is the gluten that we're consuming now in modern day society is completely unrecognizable as the gluten that our ancestors were eating 150 years ago. And so, you know, just in, in, you know, farming and 
gluten, and I don't know if you know this, but wheat is actually not G- technically GMO in the United States. They don't ha- they have GMO soy, they have GMO corn, uh, but they technically don't have GMO wheat, even though they've found some GMO crops that have been growing and have cross-contaminated some of the other crops. But the wheat that we're getting now and most of, of America is consuming, it has just been hybridized and crossbred over many, many years and centuries to really be something that has three times the yield that our great-grandfathers were able to get on their own fields. And And so based on that, you're getting a a much higher concentration of the gluten protein, which is really why we're seeing epidemic rates of celiac disease and and gluten allergies across our country. Yeah, it's it's really in in everything. Again, it's one of those things where modernization really takes something that, you know, early early humans uh, could handle and just cannot handle anymore in any way, shape or form. You know, and you mentioned cross-contaminant. uh, uh, cross, uh, I forget the word. Um, like, for example, corn. Corn. People don't think corn is that big of a deal, but corn for some people can be just as bad or worse than any of the other things we just discussed. Correct? Yeah. Oh, you are absolutely right. And, you know, I can even personally attest to that. You know, my husband and I have been gluten-free for 15 years. And, you know, when when we had first become gluten-free, you know, you have to, like, drive to a special store. you got to pay the health food lady in cash to get your, like, gluten-free <laughs> bread and things like that. Like, it was like a thing. And, um, you know, and a lot of the gluten-free products that were out there, you know, 10 and 15 years ago were all heavily corn-based. And so we, uh, I, made the mistake of giving my kids a lot of these gluten free products that were corn based. And I think that created a huge sensitivity, particularly in my daughter to corn. So, you know, I definitely think that there is is prevalence of all of these causing inflammation and sensitivity, you know, just based on on what our dietary patterns are. I got to give a shout out and I don't know if you've ever tried it before. I don't know, you know, maybe if I have to look at it, maybe you'll think you'll find something that you don't like about it. But I have tried this gluten-free bread mix. It's from the gluten-free society called Warrior Bread. Okay. It is the most unbelievable gluten-free bread that I have ever made before. It's a mix. You you mix it mix in a little bit of apple cider vinegar, six egg whites. Uh, if you there, you have to be you have to be okay with egg whites, obviously, because yep. that could be a little problematic. But if you can handle it, it makes the most delicious loaf of bread that you can slice and freeze that I have ever tasted in my life. So just, uh, I, you know, I'd love for you to try it one day. I don't have obviously any affiliation. I'm just saying that there are some really great options, and this seems to really be one of them for uh, uh, that's made and produced by the Gluten-Free Society. Awesome. That's really good to know. I have another shout-out, if you don't mind. No, not at all. Uh, there's a company in Saratoga, New York called Saratoga Jacks, and they make a sourdough uh, bread uh, starter mix that the way that their mix is made, they can actually bring the gluten. You can use regular organic whole wheat flour, and they can bring the gluten concentration down to about 17 parts per million. Now, for any of you who don't know, if you're eating gluten-free, the FDA allows 20 parts per million or less in a product that can be called gluten-free. 
free. So this product can get down to 16 or 17 parts per million, which is technically a gluten-free sourdough bread. And their bread is also to die for. And you buy the starter mix in like a little envelope and you do the whole thing at home yourself. It's it's kind of amazing. Oh, I'm going to try that. Sourdough bread are one of the, was one of the simple joys that I have not enjoyed since I've been gluten-free about 10 years. So I'm definitely going to try that as well. Great, great suggestion. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Although I'll tell you, Noah, I was in uh, San Francisco with my family a couple of years ago and my husband's like, let's try the sourdough. We're in San Francisco. I'm like, okay. And I hadn't had bread in over 10 years and I spent the entire night vomiting. So Godspeed, but <laughs> nonetheless, I still really? can't tolerate. Yeah. You know, I don't, so. I don't have any outward symptoms and I've made a decision. If I ever go to Europe, I will, I will give it a whirl and see what happens. But, but I'm not, I have no plans to go to Europe anytime soon, so we'll be quite a quite a ways away. What right, about cool. we mentioned mentioned eggs? Uh, yes. I mentioned eggs before. Eggs can be something that could be a little tricky as well, too, right? Yeah, so eggs are eggs are my loaded question. I hate egg allergies. You know, clearly I have partialities to a lot of things. Compte is my favorite gene. Egg allergies are my least favorite allergy. You know, the thing. But um, I struggle with egg allergies because I truly believe that eggs are quite, uh, you know, almost a perfect food. They're 100 yeah. calories. Their balance of protein and carbohydrate and fat is perfect. They raise HDL and LDL cholesterol equivalently, like it's like a magical thing. They have. But, they have choline in it, right, which is uh, very hard to get in any kind of vegetarian diet. So I, I agree with you. Exactly. So having that be said, I will say I have my own chickens. Uh, they are corn free. I feed them almost exclusively my compost scraps. And then in the winter, like this time of year, I make bird suet for them out of bacon grease and bird seed. So, I mean, I have my situations a little bit different, but eggs can be very, very tricky for people for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you're really struggling with methylation and you're trying to get your methylation to work better, which is, of course, part of the detox pathways, then the byproducts of methylation when you just kind of start up that pathway is the Epstein-Barr's favorite food. And because of that, the connection of that, the eggs can sometimes feed into that whole thing because the Epstein-Barr also likes to eat the egg protein. Ah, so for people that have... Yeah. So for people that struggle with methylation and for people who have Epstein-Barr or any of the combination of the two, I do recommend that they are egg free, at least for a period of time. The other thing is, you know, to speak of the corn, the soy, the dairy uh, and the wheat is, it, you know, it's all about manufacturing. I mean, my chickens, you know, my kids knit sweaters for them. You know, they are well cared for. They all have names. They eat, you know, a, a five star diet. And so I'm perfectly comfortable eating their eggs and sharing them with my you know, family and friends. Friends. I will say that I get concerned about commercially processed eggs because the nutrients in the eggs are highest, you know, within 24 hours of that egg being laid. Now, the biggest problem is in the grocery store, even if you're buying organic or pastured eggs in the grocery store, those eggs can be on that shelf for like three weeks. Right. Good point. So. Yeah. So that's that's my other concern with eggs. But for the most part, I would say I would put eggs in the good column for me. Yep. Yep. Now, when you when you're working with a person, what are your guidelines? Are your guidelines to simply be soy, corn, 
dairy gluten free for a certain period of time? Like, what are your guidelines? General, not you know, obviously every patient is a little different, but what are your general guidelines for this when you're trying to reduce the inflammatory action of these foods? Yes, that, so that is my general overall recommend recommendation is no dairy, no wheat, no corn, no soy. Now, the uh, dairy and the corn clear from the body pretty quickly, like within four to six weeks. Soy is closer to eight to twelve weeks, and then gluten takes a full six months. So generally I say take all four of those things out, make sure it's not in any of the products that you're eating, and then see how you feel in four to six weeks, and then we can reevaluate if there's something that we can reintroduce or there is something that you feel like in some cases you have to pull out more things. You know what I mean? So, but that's a really nice way to get people's inflammation levels down pretty quickly through diet. And I would have to say overall, not that every patient gets the same diet, of course, but I would say overall, I'm thinking someplace around 85% of people's symptoms go away with just doing that alone. Yeah, I, I would agree. Now, uh, Doc, you know, you're in the trenches seeing patients day in and day out lecturing. You know, I know, I know what you do. Are there any current dietary trends that you see that are increasing inflammation in your patient base? I think all of them have the potential to do it. I think vegetarianism can easily increase inflammation. I think uh, the ketogenic diet done wrong can inc increase inflammation. I think intermittent fasting in some cases can increase in, 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 you know, inflammation if people are doing it wrong. So I think there's, you know, definitely nuances to people who have decided to take up or follow a, a new and current diet trend and then, you know, just kind of be a little extra on how they're doing it. I mean, people can eat a ketogenic diet and, you know, basically exclude vegetables and eat a bunch of dairy and a bunch of bacon, which isn't abundantly helpful to the body. You know, people can do the same thing with a vegetarian diet where the bulk of their diet is processed grains and and dairy. And that's not going to help you either. So I think that a lot of it has to do with, you know, really having a good, solid, you know, conversation with people. If you're going to be vegetarian, then you need to make sure you, I always go with what I call the rule of threes, three colors of beans, three colors of lentils uh, and three different colors of grains on your plate. And that gives you basically a complete protein. You know, with keto, I never let people eat dairy more than just as a condiment. Number one, it has carbs in it. And number two, you can get real filled up on dairy and then be hungry again in two hours, which kind of defeats the whole purpose of trying to get into ketosis. So, you know, I definitely think there are some nuances out there. And I think that's why a lot of these diets get a bad name in the press. Like the ketogenic diet just got rated as one of the worst uh, diets out there. And I'm like, oh, sure, because if everybody's eating, you know, keto snacks and, and, you know, you know, throwing back the dairy, it's not a healthy diet, you know? It, it, the nuances are amazing, and it's and it's one of the reasons why you, you you it's a really good idea to work with somebody. I'll give you an extreme example. Let's face it: for some people, the carnivore diet works, and it does not increase their inflammation. They do Correct. all the testing, and it shows it doesn't. You know. Yep. Um, but it's not for everybody. Right. For some people, it'll be absolutely disastrous. Right. So it's 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 just goes to show how much, um, you know, thought has to go into it and how much you think and how much you need people to help guide you through some of these decisions and choices. People get mm -hmm. so oh. caught up in the dogma um, uh, of I have to do I have to do this one way. And if I don't do it exactly perfectly, uh, it, 
it's going to fail. And then they get sicker and sicker and sicker, and then they can't get out of their own way. And then, you know, then they've done some serious metabolic damage. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I've seen that overwhelmingly in my practice over the years. That's a very, very true statement. I, I know. So, you know, we talked a little, I just mentioned some blood work indicators. When you look at blood work, when you look at a person's blood work, what is the two or three markers that a per person at home can either get or look at to see if they have um, increased inflammation without even, you know, discussing it with anybody yet? What, what, what should they be looking at? So I like uh, the C-reactive protein, standard blood test. I like the SED rate. Those are like my two favorite. But I also do a pretty comprehensive analysis of the thyroid because, remember, the thyroid helps control our metabolism. And so if our metabolism is off in any way, then it's certainly going to, you know, create a delay in digestion or, you know, cause sluggish digestion or dumping syndrome or something like that. And so we need to make sure that our thyroid is working properly so we can clear whatever it is that's, you know, uh, causing inflammation in the body. So I also do a pretty good job at checking the thyroid. The other thing is, is you want to make sure the cofactors to methylation and detox pathways are open. So I take a, a good hard look at a lot of minerals and I look at the minerals inside the cells. And I also look at a bunch of vitamin levels, particularly B12, B6 and B9. Yeah, yeah, those are those are all. And, and it may sound complex, but these these are pretty these are relatively standard blood work indicators. I'm wondering your thoughts on iron and ferritin because I know you know I know a high amount of iron is really an incredible pro-oxidant and terrible for the for the body, but too little iron is really incredibly traumatic to the body too because that's iron you know and hemoglobin is what travel uh transports oxygen around the body i for one was anemic for almost 10 years for uh, a, a separate issue and i felt like crap every day of my life i ha i personally had to supplement with iron every single day mm -hmm. um what are your what are your thoughts on ferritin as a marker um, I do check ferritin and I also checked uh, transferrin and, and I will, uh, you know, here's a shout out to a friend of mine named Dr. David Brady who did my uh, lab testing class back in medical school and he said uh, the ferritin is the uh, person who rides in the taxi cab and the transferrin is the taxi cab itself. Okay. So that's how I describe it to my patients. And so it's a good way to know, like you said, you know, iron helps the heme and the heme helps carry the oxygen around. So if your iron is low, then you're not making heme properly and you're, you basically don't have the right taxi cabs to drive the oxygen around in your body. So I do check uh, ferritin and transferrin. However, I don't always necessarily replete with iron because of the potential of the pro oxidation. So sometimes it's a methylation problem. Sometimes it's just an inflammation problem. Sometimes it's a menstrual cycle problem. It all depends on the patient itself. But those are markers that I check as well to kind of look at how the body is, you know, even cell signaling properly, sometimes by managing B12, because B12 is the cell signal for the body to make, you know, bone marrow or blood. And so sometimes if you can get the B12 num numbers balanced better, that you don't really have to go after the ferritin and the transferrin and you can avoid iron supplementation. How about homocysteine? I check that often as well. 
Uh, I'm obsessed with homocysteine. I check it on almost all my patients and I use it as a con- almost as like a control when I'm checking my patients via blood for MTHFR because not everybody that's positive for MTHFR has elevated homocysteine and not everybody with elevated homocysteine is positive for MTHFR, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. All right. And again, it's, uh, looking at these blood indicators are, are, are really, really helpful um, very, very helpful, and there are tons of people that can help you uh, look at your blood work uh, and, and get a hold on where you are and, and where you need to be. Uh, a few steps back, you mentioned um, time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I th- this has become the, basically the starting point for um, – if, if I talk to anybody about health or wellness beyond, you know, chiropractic and some of the simple things that I do every single day, it, it's to get them on some form of intermittent fasting, you know, to start off around 12 hours because I think everybody and anybody can really master 12 hours and then move on to 14, 15, 16 from there. But you mentioned that that uh, intermittent fasting, if done wrong, could potentially create inflammation too. Uh how, how, what is the mechanism there? So when I'm recommending intermittent fasting to my patients, I always make sure that their thyroid is in balance, again, because we have to look at metabolism, and I always make sure that their adrenals are functioning properly. Because if we don't have the proper functioning thyroid or the proper functioning adrenals, what happens is is the body perceives that intermittent fasting as a stress response. Right. So it lowers the metabolic rate and it raises the cortisol. Right. Which basically puts you back in the position that you don't want to be, which is why you're doing intermittent fasting to begin with. And um, I am, however, grateful that finally I've never in my whole entire life been a breakfast eater. It has never worked for me. And my mother used to get on me and used to walk out of the house with begrudgingly with some sort of protein bar or some sort of protein shake like through junior high and high school. And it it just never was anything that I really appreciated. I, I, you know, I always woke up, you know, feeling full and never wanted to eat breakfast. And now there's certainly a ton of research that's coming out that's saying that breakfast is the most important meal of the day is clearly a marketing ploy by cereal companies. So everybody would eat cereal in the morning and then clearly be hungry all day, you know? So I think a 12 hour fast is very manageable. And I do the same thing when I'm introducing intermittent fasting with my patients. I have them start with a 12 hour fast because most people can easily go from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. And then based on how they're feeling and and parameters with their blood sugar, I then introduce, you know, a longer fast. But again, coupled with the nourishment and the nutrient dense foods that you're then consuming in that restricted period of eating. So we're not going to, you know, restrict our eating for 16 or 18 hours and then go have a hot fudge sundae. It completely defeats the purpose, raises cortisol, stresses the stomach and, you know, could potentially risk elevation of diabetes markers. So we're going to have an appropriate, you know, nutritionally dense meal or two in that period of time yeah yeah well well said if you choose to intermittent fast in the times that you are eating you you need to make sure you're hitting all those healthy parameters of uh of nutrient density and nutrient diversity for sure for sure mm-hmm. and the adrenal component is um really important as well you know you hear a lot. And this is another example. You hear a lot that you know, ending your shower on the, uh, putting your the shower all the way down the cold and standing on their cold shower, is is really good for you. And four years ago, my adrenals were shot, and I tried to do this, and I screwed myself up even more. Recently, you know, I'm, I'm much healthier now. 
I've been doing it pretty aggressively, uh, a cold shower for several minutes every single day um, for several months, and it is it has been awesome. And I can only attribute it to my adrenals being in much better shape than they were several years ago. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. That's good stuff for sure. Now, you mentioned it with diet, but mm-hmm. um, I'm going to ask the question again as we round out. What are what are some take homes? What can our audience do right now? Simple a simple action plan to reduce chronic inflammation. The, you know what could they do now? Immediately start uh, as soon as they listen to this. Sure, they can turn off their Wi-Fi at night, right? They can drink lemon water because lemon water, even though it's acidic going in, it actually helps the body digest better. So it lowers the gastric pH, which then causes more alkaline to be released in the duodenum when, you know, it's called chyme for anybody who's interested, gets to the lower part of the intestine for digestion. So lemon water, there you go, right? Uh, You certainly could cook with spices like turmeric. Uh, That's also very, very uh, anti-inflammatory. There's, you know, if you don't like lemon water, you can use a little bit of apple cider vinegar in your water, and that also helps. Um, I mean, not anybody, nobody has to do the extremes that we've done. My husband just bought a $1,000 alkaline water machine. Mm -hmm. Um, You you know, you certainly could swish and, um, you know, do some oil pulling with some coconut oil. That also helps with, um, you know, removing acidity in the mouth. So those are really inexpensive, you know, useful things that, you know, you could, like you said, you could do today. Most of us have coconut oil at our house. Most of us have lemons that we can squeeze into some water at our house. Um, And we easily can go over and shut off the Wi-Fi. Trust me. I know the first step's the hardest. We can all do it. (laughs) The the, the, um, oil pulling and oral health is is a really good one, too, because if you reduce the inflammation in your mouth – it goes a long way mm-hmm. with reducing the inflammation everywhere in your body. You know, uh, it's, that's a really great mm-hmm. point because it it can affect. Uh, you know, we we know we've heard things uh, you know about an infection in the mouth. You know, sneaking down to somebody's heart. And let's face it, the mouth is directly connected to the stomach, which uh, you know has. To, you do not want chronic inflammation in your gastrointestinal tract whatsoever. Exactly. Well. You know, I love talking to you. Uh, we've chatted quite a bit via text recently for a, ver- <laughs> for a variety of reasons that uh, are not uh, – they're, they're never going to end. But do you have any final words for our audience, uh, anything that you think they should know, would like to know, something to check out? Sure. I mean, if anybody's interested, the book that I wrote, the second book is called All You Can Eat. Uh, all of those recipes are anti, naturally anti-inflammatory. They all follow, you know, kind of the tenets that we talked about today, gluten, dairy, corn, um, and soy free. Some of the recipes do have dairy in it. And I speak in that book regarding, like you talked about, the, the type and the quality of dairy that you want if you're consuming it. I also just recently published a course that's called Keeping Healing in the Home that has a lot of the these little like diet hacks and life hacks to just keep your home, you know, clean and, you know, allow for the body to just be in a naturally anti-inflammatory state. Where, so there you go. Yeah. Where can, where can they find those? Your website? My website has it. I can even send you the links if you want to post them with the podcast. Yeah, you could do that. But, but why don't you just tell, let them, let, what is, what is, 
your website link, and then you uh, will post it as well. What is it? Sure. So my website is drkendrabecker.com. No spaces. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm, you know, also on uh, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. So you can find me there as well. Yeah, definitely send 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 me all those links, and we'll, those will all be in the show notes for sure. All right, perfect. So here's my final question, the question that everybody gets and that you've gotten at least twice. What is your daily routine from waking to sleeping? Okay, so here we go. So I wake up and I do uh, nine minutes, okay? they are. It's my favorite nine minutes of the day. I call it PBI, prayers, blessings, and intentions. Three minutes of prayer, three minutes of blessing, three minutes of intention. Then I make a cup of coffee and I drink my coffee in silence. I don't let the dogs bark. I don't let the children nag me because this is all taking place about six in the morning. And then uh, three or four days a week, I get up and I go straight to the gym. If it's winter, um, I go to the gym. And if it's not winter, I'll go outside for a run or for a walk. And then I come home, I shower, and I get ready for my day. And then I work. <laughs> sounds, sounds good to me. You know, rhythms are so important, and the way you start your day is so important. And that's that's why I ask everybody, because we always find little nuances on how to change or really start our day in the right, on the right way. Well, thank you as always, my friend. We will definitely have you back. If anything comes up, shoot me a message, and uh, we'll have you right back on. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure, Noah. Yeah. My name is Dr. Noah DeCoyer, your co-host, and you are listening to the Beyond Your Wildest Genes podcast. If you like what you've heard today, please share this with your friends and family and encourage them to subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening. And as my oldest son Hayden says, be awesome and never unawesome. Hello, it's Dr. Noah, and I'm back. I suspect you loved listening to this week's podcast release. Our book of the month is simply incredible, and in our estimation, a book everyone needs to read. Cancer and the New Biology of Order by author Dr. Thomas Cowan should be on your super short list. Dr. Cowan has been on our podcast twice, wants to talk about Dr. Cowan's garden, his nutrient-dense, nutrient-diverse vessel powders, and most recently, on November 11, 2019, to discuss his newest book. The link to purchase the book will be in our weekly newsletter and on our social media posted and sent throughout the entire month. Our product of the month is the Juve Red Light Therapy Device. Photobiomodulation has been shown to assist with pain and inflammation release, fitness, training, and muscle recovery, and hormone regulation to highlight a few of its near countless benefits. As I mentioned, I own a Juve Mini and Juve Go and use them every day. My skin has never looked better, and I certainly recover faster from my workouts. On October 8th, 2018, I interviewed the co-owner, Scott Nelson. I highly encourage you to listen and learn more about all the benefits of red light therapy using the juice. The supplement of the month for February 2020 is vitamin D3 boost. It is pretty mainstream now how important vitamin D3 is to your overall health and wellness. What is not mainstream is the nutritional facts that vitamin D3 needs a few other cofactors, vitamins, and minerals to enhance its effectiveness. Recognizing this, we set out to formulate the gold standard for vitamin D3 supplement. Vitamin D3 Boost has the most active form of vitamin D, as well as vitamin K2, magnesium, and a little bit of MCT oil to enhance the absorption of these fat-soluble vitamins. This is truly a world-class vitamin D3 formulation. You can check out the spec sheet and research articles on our website. The 10% discount code for the month of February, and remember, it's Kate-sensitive, it's V-I-T-D-10. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening, 
and be awesome and never unawesome.